0: Hey there, Light Pollution News listeners, it's Bill, and I have a couple of quick things I want to pass along to you before the show begins. First, we've added a new texting feature to the show. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments that you'd like to make and be interested in having read on a future show, please check out the new Text Us button on the episode page from whatever podcast player that you are using. Second, we're going to try something new for our June recording. Now, I'm not 100% sure on how this will work yet. But I will be offering current paid subscribers a chance to watch a live feed, perhaps add commentary and questions during the show. I will be emailing our paid subscribers this month with the invites. If you are a paid subscriber, thank you, and definitely be on the lookout. I will say one caveat. I'm honestly not sure how this will work yet, so please be patient with me as I navigate through the uh, this new step forward for us here at Light Pollution News. All right, on to the show. <laughs> Light Pollution News, November 2023, Asphalt Dreams. Whoa, what a panel we have today, including Matthias Schmidt of National Park Service's Cedar Breaks National Monument, Ben Chappelle of the Narrowband YouTube channel, and environmental educator, Mr. Frank This month, the sphere is alive. Will the sphere be the shape of things to come? How do animals like sea turtles and deer see the world? Chicago's House of Horror continues this gruesome march through history. And how would you feel about a lit ring atop your car? It's time for another Light Pollution News, friends. All this and way more coming right up. Hey, welcome to another Light Pollution News. I'm your host, Bill McGinney, and I'm very thrilled to have this panel with me today. We have a great one for you, friends. You guys, this, I'm very excited. This is We've got three great, great astro educators here. First up, you may know him from the Narrowband YouTube channel, Mr. Ben Chapel. Welcome to the show, Ben. Now, for those of you at home wondering, what the heck is a Narrowband? Well, this is a particular method of astrophotography, isn't it right, Ben? I: don't you help
1: yes, it's based-
0: enlighten us? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so with Narrowband imaging, it's essentially a light-pollution-proof process of astrophotography by which we use very tight filters, and we can reject usually about 99% of light pollution. Now, that means you have much longer exposure times. You're getting more into the science of astrophotography because then you start to image the actual chemicals that are in space.
0: Right. What would you mean by that? What, what does that mean, the actual chemicals?
2: So, so when things burn, they burn at a very specific light frequency, which can be v- Isolated. Okay, for example, when you, you burn something, a benson burner, like it, it goes off a very specific color, and that color, you can reject all other light and just accept that color through. And by that, essentially, you're 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 blocking almost all other types of light, and thus light pollution. Because light pollution is across the entire spectrum of the rainbow, whereas these chemical reactions are extremely narrow slivers of the
0: rainbow. How'd you get into narrowband? What, what took you there?
2: Frustration with basically light pollution.
0: <laughs> you, so ben, you, you were doing that when you started Narrowband Channel. You were in Harrisburg, right?
2: Yes, I was in the city at the time. And now I'm out in the country. And ironically, I still do mostly narrowband imaging. And that's because... Well, I've gotten really good at it over the years, and even even out in, I'm like I'm way out in the country now, there's still just stuff you can image with narrowband that you can't image any other way. You know, for example, even the Hubble telescope, it's in a border zero zone. It's out in space. And yet, NASA still uses narrowband filters to basically block uh, a lot of light pollution from stars, so to speak, because your stars get really big and bloated in broadband images because they are they're broadband, whereas the chemical reactions that are in space from these nebulas and dust clouds are uh, very narrow spectrum, and so you can kind of like shoot through the stars, so to speak.
0: Kind of get rid of all the other crap, right? You're going to just bring yes. it down to... yeah, And you make some phenomenal uh, photographs, so... Yeah. Well, the other big news, I guess, is you've been You've had an ongoing battle with cancer. We're so mm-hmm. sorry to hear this. I I recall when we talked over at Cherry Springs back in June, you mentioned that you had like some kind of digestive issue or something was going on. Uh, so, so what what happened? What what's going on? Well,
2: I I lost about close to fifty pounds total. I think a little bit after we had talked at Cherry Springs, and and actually, I found out that I had cancer uh just a couple days after you and I talked really wow basically i got home and i was so i hadn't been able to eat in such a long time that like something was up and and basically it was it's cancer is what it is and
0: you're, you're in are the mend is that right or i guess i, I don't know how 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 recurring this this actual cancer is it's it's surprisingly. I've had
2: three other college buddies contact me and say, "Hey, I've got the exact same cancer as you do." Oh, geez, uh, I What mean, college you go to?
0: The, <laughs> make I know sure.
2: <laughs> each of them's a little bit different.
0: What were they uh, feeding like you guys? Guy,
2: he, yeah, he's got colon cancer, and oh guy, guy he got he had kidney cancer. Mine was just in the stomach; He was on the inside wall, and 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 I was having issues with eating. I was basically starving to death because I couldn't eat. Wow. Well. And I, I had dropped almost fifty pounds. I got down to about a hundred and forty pounds, and it was just skin and bones, you know. And wow. now, now I, my, my weight's back up. I'm like back up twenty five pounds now, as of us recording this, which, which is That's great excellent. news because
0: I'm on the mend. Excellent. Well, yeah, you're moving in the right direction. Thank God. That must have been really terrifying for, because I mean, you have three, two, two small kids, right? I have four. four. Four small kids. Okay. Well, it's little. Yeah. But yeah. At,
2: <laughs> at three, when we talked to Cherry Springs and my wife gave birth, of course, about the same time we found an eye cancer. So, oh my
0: God, wow. What a roller coaster. Yeah. Oh and chemo is bare. I'll tell you what. Wow. Well, let's shift subjects over to, to, Latius, so you're in, you're in Utah. Is that right? Or is that where I'm guessing you're at?
1: No, I'm in Southwest Utah. Yes, Yes,
0: you're correct. Southwest Utah. Okay. So you're Dark Sky Coordinator for National Park Service in uh, Cedar Breaks. Is that right?
1: Yeah, Cedar Breaks National Monument.
0: Yeah, and I know you're an eclipse chaser. Matthews, why don't you? So I guess you, you probably
1: didn't have too far to go. Like, how was this past eclipse? This probably was. It was really good. We had several programs going on in Cedar Breaks. And I worked with my colleagues in Zion at the Visitor Center. Uh, we were just outside the path of annularity, so we got an eighty-nine point two percent partial eclipse. If you would have driven fifteen miles north, you would have gotten an eighty-nine point three percent annular eclipse, where the moon's disc is centered perfectly in the disc of the sun. But it's these these events, these eclipses, are great outreach events because you look at the sun. And it is amazing how the moon's disc moves across the sun in three hours, and how you can connect the everyday with the extraordinary. Yeah, and prepare the people for the total solar eclipse next year that we have on April eighth in the United States. That you really see the solar system at work during the day in an amazing way.
0: Yeah, how was the reception just for? For the event that you guys held. It was a, a smashing success, so to speak. Who, who doesn't love any kind of an eclipse, right? It's, it's so uh, surreal, you know,
1: right? It, <laughs> it, it is surreal. And I, I think back and I try to explain to people, imagine our ancestors 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago that saw something like this happen, where the sun is the source of life and energy for us and didn't know what was going on. At some point, we realized how this works. The the, the primal fear in uh, Homo sapiens probably led to uh, expanding our knowledge about how things truly work and figure things out, which is what, what we're really good at.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I can I can really see it spurring thought, right? Every time I see an eclipse or if it's any... Any eclipse, you're talking about lunar, solar, any part of an eclipse, it spurs thought, right? The first thought that comes to my mind is hey, what's going on there, right? What am I actually seeing? And visually, right, you're, obviously your brain can make up a lot of answers to that. But uh, there's just there's so many different things going on, including a basic, you know, kind of basic math, right? Your brain is kind of timing this thing as it goes on and you're kind of checking in on it. So you have like a time component. It's really, really an interesting, multifaceted experience. And you've been everywhere to see these eclipses. You've been down to Antarctica. Tell me about that. How is that?
1: So, yeah, yeah. So the the eclipse, by the way, is an an attack on the senses. You hear wildlife and you don't hear it. You see the temperature change dramatically after 80% going forward. The, The light takes on a ghostly Veil a ghostly shimmer that I I do not experience anywhere but during an eclipse, and you see the shadow bands, you see the the partial eclipses through the leaves of the trees. It is exciting yeah. and mesmerizing. So my first total solar eclipse was August twenty first, two thousand seventeen, and a lot of the listeners probably remember where they were and what they saw, and this was my first. A total solar eclipse and after i experienced this, something happened to me and as a scientist it's really hard to pinpoint what exactly happened but i got i got invigorated i got rejuvenated i was a science major in engineering school at physics and i signed up for my master's in astronomy became active in the astronomy club in new york city started teaching astronomy at a local high school so astronomy became my life. And in uh, 2019, I was in Argentina for the total solar eclipse. 2020, couldn't travel to Argentina because of COVID. In 2021, I decided to go to Antarctica because uh, that's you know just around the corner from Utah here. Yeah, why not? And uh, I figured this is a once in a lifetime. I will either go to Antarctica to see the eclipse or we'll probably never go down there. Yeah. So I, I realized Based on the weather forecast for December and the South Scotia Sea, that the cloud cover was usually very high. There was a better chance on mainland Antarctica where there actually was a eclipse camp where you could go there for a week and camp there, take a, take a plane from Ushuaia. But that cost to the tune of $50,000 and uh, oh. I didn't want to mortgage my house. So... <laughs> The sailing down there on a vessel, on an uh, expedition vessel, was expensive enough. But I thought, okay, you know, I missed 2020, so I'm 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 going for it. I'm and open. lo and behold, and I I met some fantastic NASA scientists down there that regularly observe total solar eclipses because that's a low cost method to observe the solar corona, and with a narrow band band to gain more insight about the astrophysical causes of why the corona is millions of degrees when the uh, photosphere is only a few thousand degrees. Unfortunately, on the morning of uh, the eclipse, it was cloudy. So the the clouds went dark and they went bright again. And uh, that was the extent of the eclipse. But when you're in, in Antarctica, you see so many amazing pieces of wildlife and nature and uh, following on the trails of 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 the endeavor uh, and shackleton was just so inspiring how he rescued all his men in a three year journey getting stuck in the pack ice they come back to europe and world war I was happening and half of this man got killed in in battle antarctica is definitely uh, a once in a lifetime uh, place to visit is that nature is untouched and pristine, and I that my some of my first uh, responses and observations were, I can never order anything on Amazon ever again because of the impact that my daily behavior has on our planet oh. and, and how this fragile ecosystem uh, down there suffers from the from human behavior. You know, but then I came back and ordered a book about Shackleton on Amazon. So, you know, forgive me.
0: (laughs) I think we'll we'll let you pass this once.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then I was in Australia this year in April where I visited dark sky parks. Oh, yeah. Um, Excellent. Yeah. They learn more about how they work. And uh, the Southern Hemisphere is just stunning. The Southern Milky Way and the constellations. So I I live a very adventurous life. I don't have uh, kids or or wife. So I spend all my uh, free money on chasing eclipses and uh, uh, um, astronomy equipment.
0: Wow! Well, we all wish to stuff in your shoes now. <laughs> Thanks, Matthias. I love, I love this story about the eclipse, Frank. It's been a while. It's been a, a couple of months. You have any good? I want to hear some good eclipse stories. You got anything good?
3: <laughs> no, I, no, Matthias. I think what happened to you that when you saw your first eclipse is the sense of awe you know you get this sense of all the same thing happened to me i we saw the the total eclipse back in 2017 and the feeling i got when it was completely dark was like nothing i'd ever experienced before like you know you get tingles and you know do you have the smile on your face you can't help it and everybody you know in this big parking lot where we were set up you know was just happy and smiling and And I started looking into the the literature on awe and awe generates a whole bunch of sort of psycho, positive psychosocial reactions in people. So people who experience awe a lot of the time, you know, know, frequently or or occasionally, they are more altruistic, they're more empathetic, they're more compassionate. They see themselves as part of a bigger community. So there's this positive, you know, reaction to experiencing awe. And I did the same thing. I started right after the eclipse. I went and bought my first telescope. I started doing astrophotography. And so, you know, in the, the five or six years since, that's pretty much been my my main hobby, pretty much my life. So, yeah, I think that's kind of what what you're feeling. And that's a, that definitely is what I felt. Frank, I know last time you were on, we didn't have a chance to speak about this. And I... I know you
0: run. You have the Night Sky Resource Center. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about what that is?
3: So the Night Sky Resource Center um, is my blog well, and my website. It basically allows me to do a few things. One, it lets me sort of ruminate and write on light pollution and night sky topics. You know it. I through that that platform, I also share some research and news that I find interesting about light pollution and night sky. And you know, I hope I also provide some inspiration and to, for people to protect the night sky and to to appreciate the night sky. And I do that through connecting to my astrophotography. And hopefully that kind of inspires people to. To you know, have that uh, seek out that type of experience. Yeah. Really, it's just Frank. It's, it's wonderful, wonderfully written. Oh, thank you. So, this great blog you have over there. Thanks. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and it, you know, it's just really a vehicle that allows me to kind of continue to contribute to the night sky movement. Oh, okay. Well,
0: I hope all of you guys had a chance to look at the moon last night. Evidently, it was international. Observe the moon, my Matthias. Did you? you guys have anything for that? I know there's 3,000. They said there are 3,000 events going on around North America.
1: Yeah, last night but uh, was, we didn't have a public event. The Cedar Breaks is uh, closed now for the season because we're at over 10,000 feet and we closed the ranger station last week, but we want to provide a stargazing in the winter. We'll have a new uh, building that we can use. Uh, we care about our our visitor's health and we'll have a little fire slash heating elements so that we can go outside look at the stars they're amazing in the winter and then warm up and then you know kind of go back and forth so that's one of the plans that we Mm -hmm. do a little bit differently starting in january this year my boss also had the insightful idea to start and offer solar observing we have a coronado that we use and half of our astronomy programs visitors experience the sun through a uh, through an h alpha telescope in a way that they yep. usually do not see it yep. and again that gives us an opportunity to teach people and share with them how the sun works because the sun is the closest star and at night we see plenty of stars so there's always opportunities to connect what we see in the sky with the uh, with the daily life, we had one weekend where I talked about the, I, I like to give people homework. It's always optional, uh, but we talked about Oppenheimer, the movie, and nuclear fusion and nuclear fission, and how they relate to stars. So we want to we talk we always talk about science, whether people like it or not, but the skies are excellent, that Cedar breaks, and we love doing programs for the public. Yeah, I'll definitely have to get out there.
0: I look forward to that. All right, well, let's get into it. It's a, a lot's happened this month, you know, and I mean a lot. The sphere is alive, and Frank, I know last time you're on, we had we talked about sphere, and I feel like the sphere is kind of like our little Elon Musk, you know, poltergeist sitting around. So, are any of you guys YouTube fans? Do we have any U2 fans in the audience here? Do we have more on the panel? I don't see any arms raised, so I'm, I'm guessing. Okay, we got. All right, so I have...
1: I live close to Vegas. I go there plenty of times. My niece from Germany was uh, just visiting and we took a look at the, you know, at the sphere from the outside is, I have to say, from a science perspective, it's an amazing technological marvel. It's incredible. Yeah. I want to go on a show. Inside, I have seen clips on how it looks. It's fantastic. There were these funny clips where the sphere is turned into a little emoji and they look down on golfers that are on the, <laughs> on the golf course, you know, teeing off. And it kind of you know, raises its eyebrows. So,
0: well, The sphere, right, because YouTube just opened up there. Only on the inside, it's, it's very, very much immersive, right? But on the outside, yeah. you have 1.2 million hockey puck LEDs. That are placed to to create these experiential exterior <laughs> shows for the most part, you know, it's a, it's a visual novel, loser, right? Uh, so, I I had a buddy who actually who went to to see you two one of the opening nights, and the the videos and the pictures he shared were pretty incredible. But then, from a dark sky perspective, right, this thing is this thing is like its own star, right? So super realistic videos that are wrapped around a giant ball. And the super bright sphere is itself a tourist attraction. Matthias, I don't know if you've driven down it. There, right? It's causing traffic jams. People actually step out to pull off to the side and they want to photograph with it and get some videos and, and you know, kind of share the, what they're seeing out there. I'm sure when F1 comes, it's going to, you know, again, be, be the centerpiece of their their nice passless racing schedule. So the idea of the Sphere for you at home came from James Dolan of Madison Square Garden, the same organization that owns the Knicks and the Rangers. And the whole idea behind it is to create a ball that changes the concert experience. However, he also wants to create one in London. And per CBS News, this group named to stop MSG Sphere, which is what the Londoners call it. And they're kind of terrified because of what they saw in Vegas. So residents believe that MSG Sphere will severely bright the area, and they surmise that the actual venue experience isn't really going to be about the venue as much as it's going to become a nonstop, gigantic LED board for commercials. Uh, So the MSG organization, trying to overcome some of this community pushback, they're really pulling out some of the stops. MSG cites upwards of 3,200 jobs to train youths on entertainment industry skills, such as rigging and sound systems, they have plans to, to pour money into infrastructure improvements around the area that they're trying to build in, which is Stratford. And most importantly, you guys will appreciate this, they even offer residents blackout curtains, which is really kind of them. So the, this, <laughs> <laughs> right? the proposed sphere is higher than the Statue of Liberty and will house 20,000 people. Is this where we're headed with with all venues? Are, they all, are we all going to have our spheres in our cities? This is see giant glowing balls popping up
1: everywhere? You've got a sphere in the <laughs> night sky. It's called celestial sphere. And I'm not against growth. Uh, I'm for growth as long as it is mindful and where we use our resources in a in a way that it's sustainable. People want to be entertained. We can come to the, any of our dark sky programs or friends to see the celestial sphere. I find it uh, ironic that they want to offer blackout curtains to residents. That's the um, least they could
0: do, right, Matthias?
1: <laughs> that's the, that's the least uh, they could do, but uh, it doesn't have to be on at night, right? So you can turn it off at night. You can turn it into the celestial sphere and people go like, "Oh, wow! Where can I see this in nature?" So,
3: yeah, you know, I'm encouraged by the pushback that we're seeing for a lot of these things, right? I think the last time I was on, we talked about the LED billboards in Miami and, you know, the pushback that they were getting on that, you know, basically from citizen groups. They were saying, like, no way, we don't want this. You know, the same thing happening in London hopefully will have an impact. So I'm I'm encouraged by that. I think it'll kind of put the brakes on and moderate the tendency to create a, a sphere in every city. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I'm encouraged by some of the, the pushback that we've seen from, from a public standpoint. Yeah.
0: And it's your point, Frank, in Miami, we actually have some good news on that where they okay. actually, Miami is not going to put up those billboards. They want to put up uh, billboards All throughout the downtown, which we're not talking about a dark area, but at the same time, they want to put up uh, large electronic billboards in parks, in green space that they already have. So the community successfully was able to push that back. So kudos to Miami.
2: There is actually policies being developed in Las Vegas that regulate the brightness of some of these LED screens. And I know this because I work for a trade show company. We're out there all the time. And I felt employees have already been to the sphere and they say it's incredible, but it's, it's an experience unlike any other kind of like, but it, he didn't really talk about it that much as if it was like mind blowing, like I would see something in nature. Right.
1: I think someone from the Las Vegas community, I think it might've been the city. Uh, I'm on the Colorado Plateau, Dark Sky Cooperative. We put on uh, quarterly programs to educate the uh, residents and government, state, local agencies about uh, the the benefits of the dark skies of the Colorado Plateau. And that person from Las Vegas uh, took what we presented in terms of uh, the effects on people's health, their circadian rhythm, by these excessive uh, lights in big cities, including the Sphere. It is something, there's something in preserving dark skies and protecting them for for everyone that people can learn about and use as leverage to share with others. This is what we're doing. And this is the, the imp, not just the potential impact, this is impact that we can prove scientifically how this affects the circadian rhythm of people, their mental health and life and wildlife and et cetera, et cetera.
2: When we moved to the country, we, my wife and I slept so much better because we had true darkness at night. Yeah, bad in, in the city, we had room darkening blinds, and despite two layers of those room darkening blinds, I could still get up at night and walk through the house without tripping over anything because so
0: much light was coming through the windows, despite my blinds. Ben isn't I, I always look at it because I, I live here in Philadelphia, but we uh, at the current moment have a a situation where it's we actually have a natural night, and nighttime is such a miserable experience for most people, right Ben to your point like it's just such a miserable experience you don't you don't get good sleep, you always have someone doing something that's affecting you, like your neighbor is always doing something that's affecting you right
2: oh yeah the new york city the the
1: city that never sleeps it's just not healthy, <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I lived in New York City for 15 years. I have direct evidence on what it can do to people's <laughs> health and minds.
0: Well, Matthias, on that note, I'll, let's offset the talk of the sphere here with Frank, to your point, some some small grassroots efforts we're seeing, because we are seeing stuff come up from the bottom. And well in Chicagoland, we have the Forest District of DuPage County, which is actually budgeting for some major dark sky upgrades in the the parts of the district that are actually lit. Breckenridge is attempting to become a certified dark sky community, a feat that's estimated to cost the town around $3.6 million in presumed retrofits and other compliance-related activities. Breckenridge started down this journey back in 2007 and originally set the deadline for compliance by 2022, but has since moved the finish line out to 2025. There's a study this month in the German Journal of Urban Affairs that offers up some practical guidance for communities to actually mitigate light pollution, building upon the example of Flagstaff. Uh, there's small movement around there's small movement in Los Angeles County to enforce light pollution mitigation for the unincorporated rural communities. Los Angeles County, surprisingly, has a light pollution ordinance on the books that dates back to 2012. There's a new push to focus on rural communities within that county to create a zone of responsible lighting. I suppose the county is using that to test to see community responses before maybe trying to see if they can dip their toes, see if other larger municipalities might want to accept something like that. Those little victories, though, were also offset by the new billboard scheme that looks like it's coming through in LA. Now it hasn't been finalized and it still has some ways to go. But out there, they want to install 86 digital billboards on 49 structures around metro areas or metro-owned property, which is transportation setup that they have in in the city of Los Angeles. But the billboards are going to supersede local ordinances that may prohibit that kind of advertising. Um, So, and and that response, you know, I know, Frank, we spoke about this in a prior episode. It looks like there's a, you know, there's some people who actually support this and other people actually, you know, are, are pretty dead set against it. You see community going against it, but then on the other side, the benefactors, city government, iron workers, electrical worker unions, they're looking at it as, hey, this is great you know, jobs for, for everyone. This this is going to be a real big boon. So th- these little facilities and um, devices that we create for light pollution, uh, they, they have multiple stakeholders on both
3: sides, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's not an easy task to push back against these things, for sure. You're going up against a lot of political interests and a lot of political influence and a lot of money go into, you know, campaigns to promote these types of of things. It's not a, it's certainly not a sure thing that, you know, grassroots participation can stop these, these types of things. But, but I do see that that is, you know, that type of pushback is increasing, you know, that people are going, no, wait, this is going to cause light pollution, which honestly i think 20 years ago that would never happen like it wouldn't have been an issue and i think that now that the fact that people are saying now that this is going to cause light pollution and all the negative consequences that that entails is a is a very encouraging point you know is that but it is an uphill battle for sure there's a lot of vested interest in in you know tourism and and construction and all of those types of political you know interest groups that are going to be pushing for these but i'm really i'm really encouraged and hopeful that that just the fact that that citizens are noticing this issue and starting to push back against these these projects is good
0: frank what what could like a what could a small community actually do to to win out what what how does a small community overcome some of these entrenched stakeholders
3: you know, I think with the, the, the Miami story was good. I thought it was a good example, right? I mean, it was literally people signing petitions, people calling their 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 county commissioners. They were, you know, just doing, putting, applying political pressure. And it's one thing to, for a politician to have to deal with, oh, I might lose, you know, funding for my campaign if, if I vote this way right? from a, from an industry, from an interest group. The industry group—that's one side of the, the the scale. The other is: Are my constituents going to vote for me next time? Right. And so, money goes obviously is is very important to political campaigns, but it's not the only consideration. If you, especially in a small area like a county or a municipality, if you upset the wrong group of constituents, you're you're likely not going to get elected, no matter how much money you have from, you know, from industry groups. So I think that, that there is a lot of power in, in you know, citizen participation. And and I think especially in those local jurisdictions like that. Yeah.
0: We'll, we'll see how that plays out in LA. In LA yeah. You look at something like San Jose, where the community is very much against billboards coming in. And the only people who voted no against it were the two mayoral candidates. Everyone else <laughs> voted yes on that. And then you you go out to Miami where there's such a revolt that they essentially had to find a a different path. So
3: yeah, you know, and, and I'm sure they, the politicians in Miami, you know, lost may have lost some funding for their campaign from certain just interest groups that didn't like the way they voted. You know, they that that may well be the case. But I think they also, you know, politicians are also good at reading the the wins, the political wins and knowing whether something's a political winner or a loser and, you know, and voting against those financial interests, if, if, the, if need be.
0: I, I, I hope the best in LA. <laughs> well, I know you guys are all in astrophotography. So I got a question. You guys, have you guys witnessed blue Walker three pass? Have you seen this guy in the sky at all? No. So now when observed three times over the past year, Blue Walker 3 had a magnitude of point four six and point four. So for those of you at home who are not familiar with the star brightness magnitude scale, bright objects range from negative 0.6, which is Venus, say to 2 for North Star. This, the negative in this case actually really means it's really bright with a higher number, say of 7, is about as dim as you could go with just your eyes. Now, Blue Walker 3 crossed at a brightness of 0.4 twice. That's very bright. Keep in mind the magnitude scale is logarithmic. So when I say 0.4 versus a magnitude of 6, we're really talking 0.4 was was 100 times brighter than the 6 magnitude pass. The IAU, the International Astronomical Union, recommends that all satellites in low-Earth orbit do not exceed a brightness of 7. So the good news here is that there's a stakeholder coalition that formed in April of 2022. Uh, the CPS, and they've been working with the makers of Blue Walker 3, AST, Space Mobile. On the face of things, it appears that AST is receptive to the concerns of astronomers, although AST plans to launch upwards of 90 of these large satellites for their broadband network, nicknamed the Constellation of Bluebirds. you got to love the gumption of satellite companies, too. <laughs> you guys are this. AST's mission statement sounds like a trite AI-generated motto. AST aims to alleviate poverty, spur economic development, and save lives. May God bless them. I hope they can cure cancer along the way. <laughs> All of this entered into the news due to a recent study that assessed the brightness of Blue Walker, the Blue Walker what? antenna unfolding in the relationship of bright satellites by its height above the horizon, an angle shared by the observer satellite and sun. So so there's now a study. Actually, people went out and studied the brightness of satellites, including the Blue Walker satellite. So in the show we recorded over summer, I stumbled across an Australian news article that talked about satellite launches exceeding 500,000 before the decades out. And I know you guys are chopping at the bit to discuss how this will impact photography, but I'm curious how it's going to impact Starry Night advocacy. Like, at one point where's the point advocating for dark skies when everything is moving above you? I I think that this just
3: demonstrates that regulatory, the regulatory agencies are so far behind on this issue already. You know, this is just going to keep getting worse and there's really nothing in place from a regulatory standpoint to control. And so I really think that we need to kind of, you know, catch up and start putting regulations on 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 the effects of satellites in orbit. I mean, when it was back in the day, when it was just, you know, select countries that were capable of putting satellites in orbit, it wasn't as big of an issue. But now you have, you know, thousands of companies that are all launching their own satellites. And it's becoming sort of a free-for-all up there. And there's going to be impacts to, you know, the night sky and and astronomy and all of that. So I think that, you now what we really need is sort of like an international treaty system like we have for the oceans that, you know, really are are designed to kind of nip this issue in the bud before it gets completely out of hand. But I think we're just so far behind the curve right now that we have a lot of catching up to do to try to address this issue.
0: Yeah, Frank, I wonder about that, right? And I, I have to think back to my international law classes to remember the sea treaties came about, but I wonder if we're... We're just not in an environment where we could get a treaty even made.
3: yeah, that's a good point i I think there is a, a challenge right now politically, you know, and uh, there there's going to be a lot of pushback against it. I think keeping you know space open to anybody is going to be is a is a very appealing position for a lot of people and a lot of companies. Uh, and they're going to push back against any kind of regulation, but you know, they did that for other environmental causes too. You know, there was pushback against, you know, issues, regulations on hazardous materials and, and, you know, air pollution and, and putting in, you know, scrubbers and, and technology to reduce air pollution. I mean, there's always pushback. There's always pushback against that type of thing. And I think that, you know, there's going to be pushback against this as well, but somehow I think we need to overcome this or, it's just gonna be, you know, a zoo up there.
0: Yeah, there's been phenomenal right. You're you're right. There's phenomenal laws on water, on air, on a lot of the tangible pollutants, right? You even have laws on noise. Right? You have mm-hmm. laws on noise pollution. And you know, it's questionable if they're enforced like anything else, but at the same
1: time, they're there. I think it's if if anybody to give you a an an image of how things we'll end up if you don't do anything wally the Pixar movie yes. yep. where you mm-hmm. planet encircled with you know hundreds of thousands of satellites and right now we have 9000 satellites orbiting earth half the more spacex i don't know what the plans are for the blue walker and i think it's what's the company ats for their broadband project It's just really bad for uh, science and astronomy because you have science images destroyed by these uh, Starlink trails that go through science images. You can mitigate uh, some of the effects of of this if you have individual satellites who you can kind of predict. But the prediction of uh, orbital dynamics and orbits of satellites is apparently challenging to do. So yeah, I agree with Frank. We have to come up with a reasonable regulation and expect from companies that they adhere to this. And it's not like the Wild West up there. We have technology to mitigate the, the albedo and the reflectance of the satellites. And it's just another battleground for people that are passionate about the the night sky to educate the public about you know what this does, no matter how cool it is to see a Starlink satellite, the train launch in the in the sky. Do you think it's gonna affect culturally how people
0: look at at night? Is this gonna be a cultural change as well? I think it it has to be
3: yeah, I think it has to be partly cultural to develop that regulatory system, right? And there has to be some sort of cultural shift. And and I think we're seeing the the beginning of that, right? Where we're starting to get more people to, you know, be aware of the issue. And and you know that's the first step. Right. But there needs to be a a better understanding that, you know, that that there are actual impacts and effects on humans and the, the environment from increasing the overall brightness of the night sky. And I think that's the kind of one of the first things that has to happen. You know, litigation is another kind of driver of policy change. You know, you can get some good lawsuits at the right stakeholders. Well, that how, about, how about this, Frank? You know, litigation
0: is definitely a way, but what about if you have a uh, constellation of military satellites up there and stuff becomes so, so unhinged that, you lose your domain awareness on the ground, right? Like you, yeah. you actually have a tactical disadvantage because now there's just all this space junk up there, all these satellites flying around, and you know, I don't know.
3: Yeah, I mean, could there be national security issues with you know our with interfering with military satellites? I don't know, but I, you know, that's something that I think. Would be something that would put this this issue on firmly on the public agenda, right? If we were, if the uh, Pentagon came out and said that, yeah, all these satellites are kind of messing with our our ability to track our our enemies, you know, across the world. Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna raise some eyebrows, right? Um, so those are the types of things that that need to happen to kind of drive this policy change to to doing something about. About the you know the just the in the vast increase in the number of satellites up there, yeah, so I think that's kind of a you know kind of what what needs to one of the things that needs to happen, and part of that, like you said, is a cultural change well it's a not a very
0: optimistic tilt <laughs> there, but <laughs> well, i I can say
2: this that the younger generation is much more aware of this. the older generation is like all the baby boomers my father-in-law he came up and he he did some improvements to our kids playground and he put lights on it and i was like i don't
0: want lights there (laughs) 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 yeah i do my kids you know (laughs) ben do you need the lights there is it that dark is i mean i know you live
2: in the country ah okay my parents go out at night and they say you need lights out here and I go out at night and I'm like, I can see just fine.
0: Yeah. I, I have this I, I ask because you know, obviously living in Philadelphia. We at night, especially a cloudy night, it is not dark. It is like no. a moonlit night. You can see in front of you. You can see you can get a small amount of color without light in a cloudy night here in Philly. And you can <laughs> good luck. You know, I I'm sure Matias out in uh Cedar brakes—that doesn't work the same way. But here, you definitely can. But hey, and
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't know the, the big thing here, like China, is like the giant in the future of of these future regulations because they're going to have a big say in things. And I, I will say this: like my wife and I, we watch a lot of Chinese and Korean dramas and so forth, and they don't seem to be very aware of this stuff at all. Well, Ben, it's, it's all it's all in
0: the hands of government. I, I think I think you have a good point. It's something that's a kind of a new tradition over in Asia, but it is starting to to slowly get its footing in China. Um, yes, yes, it definitely is. So i I would think that from an actually, you know from a research side, China probably has the same incentives that yes. American researchers would have. And if I recall, I think there were some Chinese observatories on that coalition that brought about that study of the satellites. So but anyway, I think it's a it's it's a curious question, right? As we're we're wondering we're kind of looking ahead into the future. And I know you guys are astrophotographers and this is gonna ruin all of your photos going down the line when we get to have five hundred thousand satellites up there. But <laughs> we'll see how it all plays out, I sure. guess. Well, now is a uh, great time to take a little quick breather. What do you say? I want to thank my panel, Frank Tarina, Ben Chappell, and Ben Chappell. Ben, ben I'm, I'm dying with your name. And Matthias, I got that one right. <laughs> Matthias Schmidt. Here at Light Pollution News, we're coming up on our one-year anniversary. I want to thank all of you at home who started out with us in Journey this year. I really want to thank you for your generous support helping us to be able to bring you all the news in, of, and around light pollution each month. I do have a favor to ask. Do you like what we provide? Are you enjoying the show? Do you think we have value? If so, we truly appreciate if you consider being a supporter. For only the cost of a cup of coffee each month, you can help us offset some of our operating expenses. Such costs include server space and production. Uh, The more costs we can cover, the more we'll be able to grow and offer. Thank you for considering being a supporter. You can find a link by clicking on the show notes for this very show. If you're already a supporter, thank you very much. It really means a lot to me. If being a supporter isn't your thing, why not say thank you by sharing the show with folks who may be interested in the issue or folks you'd like to introduce the issue to. Did you know that you can direct people to specific chapters of the show too? So if you really want to highlight something specific you heard in the show, why not share with the timestamp? All you need to do is go to your podcast player and you can find a chapter and you can share that out. And if all of that is a bit too steep of an ask, I understand. How about taking a second to scroll down to the bottom of the podcast player you're using and provide us with a rating or review? We appreciate all of your continued support in whatever form it takes. Your feedback and continued engagement really are what drives us to move forward each month. Now jumping back into things, Matias, I know you're involved in a really, truly awesome project. When I saw this, I was like, wow, this is so cool.
1: What is Space Racers? Uh, Space Racers is a CGI TV show. that's about spaceships flying through the solar system. I was one of the executive producers and COO when I was in New York. I worked for the TV show for 10 years. And we are scientifically accurate, basically teaching kids space science while they're being entertained with a cool show. Every episode is 11 minutes long. And the spaceships of Stardust Space Academy did not have to deal with light pollution as we humans had it.
0: Oh, no doubt. It's really, how did you get involved in that project? Did someone come to you or did you join that? Like, how did that come about?
1: Like the rest of my life, the universe just presents me with opportunities. And I used to be in finance in New York and after another panic attack at work. I decided to refinance as my body was telling me something about my life and career. And through a friend of mine, I was introduced to the creator of the of the show. And I was an engineering major in in Germany in school. I always loved science. I read Cosmos by Carl Sagan in German when I was a kid, and was always fascinated by space and and science and the universe and this. uh Working for the TV show basically put me down on this path to go back to astronomy and be out, out in the West. The West is the best to work for the Park Service and be under dark skies, which are totally amazing here.
0: Yeah, I'm very jealous. <laughs> well, have any of you experienced Noctalgia? It's otherwise known as sky grief from loss of our natural night sky. And I I experience it every night, but I, I assume Matias and Frank, you guys probably don't experience it as much.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes when you're exposed to like a really nice resource and you see it start to degrade, it almost hits you worse, you know, because you're looking at what it can be. If I look to my west, where I live, it's nice. It's it's probably border three or four or something like that. If I look to my east towards Denver, it's Portal, you know uh, it's it's nine you know way to the eastern horizon it's and so seeing that gradation of night sky quality over in my house just sickens me every night you know i'm watching right. my good night sky to the to the west being eaten by the sky glow from denver so, so yeah it's it's a struggle for me i definitely suffer from that well noctalgia comes to us from a letter
0: that prior guest John Barentine helped author. I think it may be safe to say to some of the people who may not have nostalgia, is this Veterans Affairs healthcare system in Pittsburgh. Check out this story. Did you know that 84% of U.S. military veterans suffer from moderate to severe depression, resulting in 20 suicides per day, culminating in 7,300 suicides over the span of a year? And apparently, depression tends to rise at night. So the Knights of Columbus, a Roman Catholic Fraternal Service Organization, raised $85,000 to put an observatory in for the Pittsburgh Veterans Affairs Hospital System. In a partnership with the Amateur Astronomers Association of Pittsburgh, many vets now have a way to exercise their night demons without turning to alcohol or other substances. I have a little clip here. I want you guys to take a listen to this video from Knights of Columbus. Huge from the Knights. They were first shocked by the cost, but... They said, no, we're going to do it. This is important. And they raised the money. They've raised all the money for this.
1: We visited 84 different assemblies
3: and castles. That's where the, about 85% of the money comes from That I mean, the
1: amateur astronomers have been great, helped us. I met Diane Turnchik, and she's going to be providing formal training for the veterans so that they can learn astronomy.
3: Everybody loves the sky and the moon looking at it. I think everybody should see the dark night sky. It's entrancing, makes you feel big, but it also makes you feel small. And if you have problems, they are also infinitesimal, tiny little specks in the grand scheme of things.
0: So that's a little clip from a recent video by Knights of Columbus showing how they were able to pull together this observatory in Pittsburgh. And I've always thought the main reason people don't actually enjoy nights nice, because they don't have a way to engage with it. And it's like those folks who whine and complain about winter, right? You know, there are those of us who indulge in winter activities, you know, skiing, skating. Matias, you go ice climbing. I don't know if you, you're able to do that out there and you told and that much. You know, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts? Is it because if you have a reason to enjoy night, you're going to actually appreciate it more, I assume, right? I mean,
1: it seems logical. I think if you offer people the opportunity to, and here's the challenge, to get out of their comfort zone, right? A lot of people have a misunderstanding about what dark night skies are and in relation to that, what dark sky advocacy means. Most uh, people think that when you propose dark skies and light mitigation strategies that you turn off all the lights and that will decrease safety and the bad guys will come out of the woodworks and break into your homes and crime rates will increase on the street, on the street. None of this, which has been proven by data about the public health. So these hurdles need to be overcome. And I think education is the biggest uh, um, contributor to the welfare of a society. So when you have the opportunity to educate people about what dark skies means, that our ancestors have had a cultural and spiritual connection to the dark skies and that we can have the same, all of these benefits will improve your mental and your physical health. And then people might think about the night sky differently and change their behavior, which I'm very hopeful for humanity that will lead down the road to a changing of our behavior in terms of burning fossil fuels, because that's the that's really the biggest problem. It's a one way road that we're driving down with dire consequences for all of us.
0: Yeah, Matias, when you talk about the education side, you there's know, something I just got into, and it's essentially nocturnal birding. And it's another way you actually focus on your senses and the environment, right? Because you get to learn about so much of what's going on just from an audio standpoint, you know? And, and it's one of those things that we don't engage enough at night. There's not enough education on what goes on. You start seeing uh, night zoos become big, right? Because people want to see what the animals do at night you start seeing night hikes become kind of the thing this past summer because people want to hear creatures they don't usually hear or, or actually see
3: what what is it like when the switch is turned off? I think it also another piece of this is urban astronomy. You know, there are most people live in cities, and most people can't see the Milky Way. But there are some great urban astronomy programs. And I was in New York City. I was in Times Square, which I think – you know, has about the same light levels as daylight um, at night. And there was a guy there with a, with a telescope and he had some filters, some some light pollution filters on, and he was showing people, you know, the planets and, and people were lining up for a block to look through this telescope. Um, so uh, the idea that you have to be, you know, in Southern Utah or, you know, the Colorado Plateau to see really nice night skies, you know, you can, you can instill that curiosity and that inspiration for the night sky by setting up telescopes in urban areas where that's where, where the people are, right? So I think that's a big part of that, of that, you know, getting people engaged more with the night sky is go where the people are and set up programs there. Right. We
1: used to do outreach with the uh, Amateur Astronomer Association of New York, the astronomy club there. And we went to Lincoln Center right outside the opera. Mm-hmm. We had our telescopes and we had people look through the telescopes at Saturn. And they thought this is a trick. There's <laughs> a little sticker in front of the telescope. They were mesmerized by yeah. what they saw. This is Saturn. These are the rings. This is amazing. How come we can see it here in New York City? Well, yeah it's called a telescope. You can see (laughs) things near that are very far away. And uh, you can see the planets in the sky, the naked eye planets, there are five of them. And it's one way to make people think, Right, you have to plant the seed for them to go home and maybe the next day tell their colleagues, you can't imagine what I saw last night at the opera. I looked through a telescope at Saturn, and right, this is like you know, this domino effect. Hopefully, will make people think a little bit differently about the about the night sky.
3: Yeah. yeah, I when I was in when I was in the in Manhattan, I took a little bit of video of people's reaction when they looked through the telescope. It was great. I I have to find it somewhere. I put it on my on my website or something, but. It was such a cool response that you were getting from people looking through a telescope. It was just, you know, some of them were almost like on a verge of tears. It was so <laughs> exciting, you know, and they couldn't believe that they were actually seeing Saturn and, and Jupiter and the moons. And, you know, so it was it's a it's a really powerful, you know, effect because those people are much more likely to care about the night sky now. And they're more likely to. Go to the West and see a really dark sky and do some astro tourism, things like that. So I think that's a, you know, like it, I think it's, it's great to draw people into the dark sky areas. But I think trying to instill that sense of amazement and awe in, a, in an urban area where you have, you know, tens of millions of people living is, is the way to go. Yeah,
0: and people are starting to notice when, when they go out there and they see the scope, they're starting to, to make that connection. Between why they don't yeah. see as much as they could see, going out to a, a dark sky reserve and then coming back to where they live, they're starting to make that connection. Now, who knows how it's going to play out? But you know, the connection is starting to be made. So,
1: yeah. the it. best people to bring to tears by looking through a telescope in New York were actually the Jets fans because that's, they're, that's, people, yeah. <laughs> they're really used to being brought to tears by something that they see. Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: Well, I don't know. I can't speak much of that because the Eagles lost to the Jets last week, but that was embarrassing. We won't talk much further on that one. <laughs> Moving on to ecology, there's big, big news this month, very sad news coming out of Chicago. Uh, per CNN, more than 1,000 birds killed in one night at one Chicago building at McCormick Place. I should note that other sources cited just under 1,000, but the impact remains somewhere around 1,000. McCormick Place is the convention center complex in Chicago, and it has a gruesome history of bird deaths. Over the past forty years, McCormick Place has killed forty thousand birds. From NPR, the Lights Out program, Chicago is great, provided no one actually has to obey the guidelines for turning off their lights at night. Well, that's a glaring problem for Lights Out. And I know Lights Out has been a really big push over the past year or two. Really, since COVID, it's been a really big push in in many cities in America. The McCormick Place cites good intentions, except for when they have events taking place. Then all bets are off. Lights are on all the time. And Lights Out just becomes a nice idea for people when it doesn't interfere with any of their projects or their life. While Chicago's Lights Out is voluntary, New York appears to be trying to push to a more, I guess you could say statutory approach to it. INT 1039 would mandate a lights out program. Legislation would impact lower and midtown Manhattan where the majority of bird deaths actually occur. According to Audubon and NYC, the legislation is actually able to answer many complaints that the real estate industry has about lights out, including, let's take a look at these. These are good. Small business exemption, landmark exemption, Any building over 20 stories can apply for a waiver. Security lighting for aircraft, that's logical. That makes sense. And I can see this one being misused. The infamous public safety out. Namely, that interior and exterior lighting should be kept on to provide safety for employees when they're in a building. And let's be honest, who's going to turn the lights off when people are working? It's not when you're going to be working that you have to wonder how this is going to be abused. So nonetheless... Is this a good start? Are we going
3: down the right road here? Is this good? Yeah, I think you know it, it. It just sickens me that the McCormick Place is still killing as many birds as it does. I mean, that that was it was back in like the seventies when ornithologists got a tip about the birds hitting the windows at that building. And that was in nineteen seventy eight, and that that ornithologist David Willard was the first to start start documenting the birds killed on that in, at that building. And it's it's just shocking that here here we are, like, you know, just 60, 50 years later almost, that they're still killing birds left and right at that building. I mean, it's something that really needs to be done. But you know, I think the other thing that strikes me up about bird strikes is that, you know, we've known about lights and birds for for 100 years yeah I mean, it's going back to the turn was a of the paper, century yep there was a paper in 1918 it was called the destruction of birds at lighthouses on the coast of california was the name of the paper oh. and in that paper the authors talked about a lighthouse in mendocino county that saw a thousand bird collisions per month during wow. the migration season Wow. They also in that article talked about reports of birds dying in much greater numbers at lighthouses in Europe. So I mean, this is something that that we've known about. You know, there've been reports of lots of birds back in the early 1900s dying on lighthouses on the Great Lakes and on the Atlantic coast. And it's not just. I mean, there have been some more recent examples of you know just massive bird mortality and and I think it was. September 12th in 1937, 576 birds slammed into the Washington Monument in an hour and a half.
0: Oh my God. Just before midnight.
3: Then, more recently, about 400 birds were killed in a single night in 2007 uh, when they collided with a, the 23 story American National Insurance building in Galveston, Texas. You know, you see these, they they're, they're Uh, weather satellite imagery or not satellite, weather radar images of clouds of birds flying across the Gulf of Mexico, right into Texas, right into Galveston. And, you know, so we're talking about millions of birds flying over overhead. And, and it's, it's just kind of sickening that we're still not doing anything about these just massive, you know, bird kills. So I think it's, and Frank, it's, you know, McCormick Place is, is just notorious for this too.
0: Frank, with what you're saying, there, right, it's not that you you can still have light at night. No one's saying that, you know, you have to turn off all the lights in the city. The lights that are, are at fault here are decorative. Like, they're not useful lights. They're not lights that are right. actually providing services to people. Here in Philadelphia, we have the Comcast Tower. It's a glow stick that birds just fly into and die. There's no purpose to the the light. It's just decorative. It doesn't, it's not going to hurt anyone if you turn it off. There are things
3: we can do to make lighted buildings less of a hazard for birds. There are ways you can light, you know, putting blinds. If it's internal lighting, putting blinds or something over the windows to reduce the, the brightness of the lights. You know, turning off, you know, making sure the lights are aimed correctly, making sure the color temperature is appropriate. All those things will reduce bird strikes. Yeah, you know, maybe they won't eliminate it, but we can certainly do things to minimize those types of, of events.
1: It's amazing and ironic that birds are the last remaining dinosaurs. I just looked up the number, depending on what source you look at. They're between 50 billion and 400 billion bird, birds on our planet. And when we read about numbers where tens of thousands of birds are killed during migration because they slam into buildings that are lit up that don't have to be we just have to realize the 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 effects of all our behavior right this is this is not rocket science no pun intended to use and follow the the lighting principles that are being promoted by the dark sky association that all of us can do, right? And you, you don't have to be a wealthy person or live in the be a wealthy Westerner to do a few things to, to help the wildlife and yourself. And unfortunately, the, these news are drowned out by the, the daily news cycle of what bad things are going on in the world by what humans are doing to each other. Yeah, well, there's no shortage of that.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. You know, huh. Well, not to stray too far from the topic of birds and Alan, but maybe this is something that we need to adopt. So evidently resident birds, namely the Carolina Wren and Northern Cardinal, have adapted to their bright environments by simply having their <laughs> eyes shrink. <laughs> and so is that maybe that's the solution. Maybe that's what we need and we will enjoy our like Polluted lights uh, much better.
2: Here, I I was just in my Dollar General like a couple weeks ago, and they have lots of lights on it, of course. And they had a couple kiddie pools outside. And those kiddie pools were actually filling up with dead insects from the lights. Wow. Jeez. So like insects
0: are a number one food source for a lot of birds. Yeah. Yeah, you got a great point there, Ben. That's exactly it. Insects are heavily impacted by light. We actually have an article here on on caddisflies, right? So researchers in freshwater biology assessed LED's impact across 26 fly species. And caddisflies are usually kind of a sign of ecological health. Uh, They're a nocturnal insect that uses lunar light as a navigation point. Per the study, utilization of LED temperatures around 4,000 Kelvin or below appear to be healthiest for these insects. With a side note, that female caddisflies appear to be more sensitive to light temperature than males. And again, again, there's really no one-size solution to fixing any problems with the insects, right? So the study also mentioned when, when they did this, they used light that was 100 times less than street light brightness. So to your point, Ben... And I know the lights you're talking about with the Dollar General. These are very, very intense lights. Although the temperature may vary between place to place, but they're very intense lights. Yeah, and and then the insects, that usually moths and your mayflies, and whatnot, just get caught up in there.
2: Yeah, and I live right next to the river, and you know, insects are a major source of food for our fish, and all those insects are getting pulled off the river onto the land. By the lights, so it, it is a major major effect
3: <laughs> it definitely is sorry there was a study that I remember reading go out back that that mayflies female mayflies typically lay their eggs on water and they use sort of the i think it's ultraviolet reflection from water like streams and lakes and and rivers and to to find where to lay their eggs on and find water like that. It turns out that light reflecting off of asphalt generates the same ultraviolet cues that tricks the mayflies into landing on the pavement and depositing their eggs. So there are pictures of of this one bridge that has streetlights over it, and there are millions of mayflies just all over the top of this bridge because they think that the the light reflecting off the asphalt is actually water and so they, they end up laying their eggs there and then getting you know killed so yeah it's, it's a big issue and and you know there are things like that that are just sort of these unintended consequences of lighting things like that
0: yeah well did you guys see this one there's an npr piece that similarly the the how sea turtles actually understand light. Uh, so there's an NBR piece that that looked at how, they look to see how hatchlings gravitate towards light and then what they can do to kind of, to build pr- more protections for them. As you guys have known from just listening to this show, that there's many communities that actually implement ecological-friendly lighting on the shores. However, sea turtles still don't make it from hatchling to adult. And a common thread in, in that is that you have places on the coast that still have a resistance to implementing ecologically safe nighttime practices within their facility. So the light is extending outward over onto the, the beach. And as it pertains to turtles, a Savannah State marine Professor, science professor, Chris Hintz, mm-hmm. is actually working hard on numbers behind how hatchlings see the world. And so he uses long exposure shots from nesting sites Hintz and his team actually developed a special program that will convert the images into how science understands what the turtles would see. So in this case, uh, since turtles are more sensitive to blue than humans are, the images visually have a blue hue and then with occasional saturation points where they can actually see a uh, light source poking its head out. I should note that artificial light at night impacts sea turtles more than just from the hatchling perspective. And Frank, you probably know this. Female sea turtles specifically seek out dark places ashore to nest in. There's no shortage of ecological issues that pop up with light. But Ben, I wanted to hear your take on this one because it's another article I came across. The Journal of Urban Ecology I had a study in it that looked at how urban sprawl impacted wildlife. And they used 104 motion-activated cameras in rural and suburban locations up in New Hampshire. And the team looked at 13 species, including the bobcat, coyote, fisher, white-tailed deer, and more. And it appeared that there was no uniformity in how animals behaved when adapting to human incursions, such as having you know 24-7 daylight. Bobcats and fishers became less nocturnal, while coyotes and deer became more. Ben, what's life out for you? Well, I'll tell you what, when we first moved out here, one of the first things
2: I noticed like going back to the insect thing, is that all the bugs were bigger out here. And there were just more of them. And there was also a lot more wildlife, just like at night. For example, I have four skunks in my backyard. And, well, actually, actually, there's five of them now. And they just trounce around at night, mostly on a full moon, 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 moon night. Whereas when there's no moon, I don't get any animals at night. Oh, interesting. Okay, And also, I have a lot of deer that walk through my backyard because I find droppings the next morning, (laughs) and they're very much nocturnal. Okay, I never, ever see them in the daytime, but they're always there at night. So deer are actually colorblind, and they don't see lights the way we do. However, with these new LED lights being so broad spectrum, they're having like a much bigger effect on nighttime deer activity than previous lights were in the past because deer were actually blind to a lot of the frequency that
0: you and I see with our eyes interesting so do you know what what they see do you know band I guess
2: uh, they only see in two wavelengths one of them
0: is UV and the other one's like a yellow light okay so is this because a lot of the new LED fixtures might be putting off UV yeah Wow, that's that's
3: something right there. The study that I was reading about it showed that that deer on the urban wildland interface that are kind of used to having lights around are actually show a preference for highly lit areas for foraging. So at night they'll go into these lit, you know, urban more suburban areas and forage because the stuff there is greener and tastier. And and so they're really drawn to that kind of environment. And then uh, there was always an understanding that it was safer for them in terms of predation by mountain lions in those areas. So that was hypothesized why they would forage in more urban areas and higher areas with more light. But it turns out that the mountain lions, again, who live on that urban wildland interface, um, aren't deterred by lit, by lit areas at all. So the deer going into these areas that have high, a lot of light are actually drawing more mountain lions into these areas, and so there's been an increase in mountain lion human interactions because of that. Oh. So you know it's it's again these sort of unintended consequences of lighting, right? You know you 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 would think that oh that there's no way a mountain lion is going to come into a lit area, so you're safer. But in reality, you're drawing deer into your lit area, and those deer are bringing mountain lions. So you're actually putting yourself at more risk of encountering a mountain lion than you would if you didn't have the lighting. Frank, we always think we're safer in the light,
0: right? (laughs) There's no way anything's going to happen. We're in light. Exactly.
1: (laughs) There you go. That's even for, you know, even for animals. That's great. That's a good little... One of the worst things that has happened to light management in the last 10 years is the distribution of these highly efficient blue LED lights. Blue LED lights scatter much more easily They are a significant uh, source of light pollution. They are energy efficient, which reduces energy costs, which is a good thing. However, these LED lights now are way too bright. You could have a lot less intense LED lights and still save even more money. These are one of the things, you know, like Frank said, the unintended consequences of our Uh, of our actions and to turn back the clock is really difficult this will take a concerted effort by not just industry but also by you know the utilities companies that have the domain over the the street and neighborhood lights and convincing a utility to do something that moves like an ocean cruise is really going to be a a (laughs) good luck (laughs) yeah
0: well, keeping in line with, with your thoughts there, Matias, is street lighting is interesting. And the way we think about lights for, from a community standpoint is interesting, right? So there's a community up in, in Wyoming, which, you know, we have small towns, right? These small communities want to kind of preserve the rural character, which they include is, is you know, a nighttime, a natural night. And you have a, a community up there, Lander, Wyoming, which is around 7,500 people, and just trying to switch over to LED street lighting. However, they're actually trying to do it in a responsible way and give responsible covers to keep the light aimed directly where it needs to be, try and get community input on where they feel like they need more intensity, less intensity, see if they can actually bring down the lights over the course of the night. So when you get to, you know, in in the wee hours when no one's out there, you don't need to have as much light for There's just not as much foot traffic or your downtown's, you know, not as busy. However, this contrasts greatly with places like Norfolk, Virginia, which, so, you know, you're just going to get these new ultra bright lights and you're going to like it. You're not even going to get a shield on it. You don't have a choice of getting a shield on it. Or you have, say, in Frederick, Maryland, which was very much the same, but they would give you some shielding so it wouldn't go in your house, which is very kind of that. (laughs) Why is there this big discrepancy between small communities and large areas that should, in theory, have more human capital with more of a... They should have much more to draw from. Why don't they do any of this
1: light work? The community of Springdale, which is a gateway community to Zion National Park, became a dark sky community in July. It took a long time for them to go down this path and execute their dark sky program and light light management, especially the... The, the public lights, but it was possible to get the citizens on board because they all share the same space. Now, if you have a larger community, for example, you know, a few cities that are close by or Las Vegas, let's go back to Las sphere.: people live in different neighborhoods, right? So the people in the northern part of Las Vegas versus the people in Henderson, how can you, are you going at community by community? How can you convince your that your neighbors and say, we're wasting energy, we're wasting money, look at the night sky, it's so beautiful, I just saw the stars while I was up at Cedar Breaks over the weekend and your neighbor is probably going to look at you dumbfounded and has this this it, in, innate sense of dark, dark means fear right, dark is like fear and it's not good so York you lived in New
0: York way too long
1: I did. I I saw more stars on Broadway than in the night sky, but I wasn't really aware of, I mean, I was aware that we didn't see stars because I traveled around the world and I saw the night skies. But until I moved out here, I was not aware of this amazing effort that the uh, park service, the state parks, the local communities have uh, undertaken by preserving these dark skies. And uh, people come out here on a regular basis for our public programs and they're blown away. But we need a lot more to be blown away, not just a few, you know, thousand people that come here uh, in the summer. I think it's just, you know, it's just noise. There's so many issues people for people to care about in their daily lives. You know, light light management is probably really low on their on their wish list.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think you have more competing interests in larger communities. You know, I think it comes down to that, and any kind of political change in a in a larger jurisdiction is always going to be a little more challenging because you have to deal with a lot of competing interests. Frank, more so it, in a small community.
0: Frank I would say in these large communities, it's much more, to me, it, it seems very bureaucratic and there's a lot less direct democratic interaction. There's a lot less one-for-one. One. So yeah. what happens is you have a organization of government who has no re- tie to the citizens, right? They don't have to worry about any elections or anything they're just a bureaucratic institution they can do whatever they feel is in the best interest of the city without having any input on what's coming from you know and how the individual neighborhoods would prefer to have certain setups that's how it comes across to me i don't know
3: yeah i don't agree with that too i mean you know you you are you know, in a smaller community, you, you are dealing more on a one-to-one basis with people as opposed to, you know, larger jurisdictions where you may have a larger bureaucracy and, and you know, more layers and more, you know, stakeholders and, and all of that gets more complex. And it's just a little more challenging to get any kind of, you know, policy or, or approach passed.
0: And I wonder about the culture of some of these organizations too, uh, be it a utility or be it you know, a streets department or some organization that's responsible for for helping provide just basic rudimentary, you know, lighting and, and road safety and whatnot. And I, I wonder about you know the the people who get placed in those positions. So people who are hired in, do you guys know is this something? And Frank, you might be being in the educational sector. Do city planners, do civic engineers, have any kind of environmental background?
3: Yeah. And I think there's a, it definitely city planners tend to have a, a lot of times it's landscape architecture, or, you know, they do have some environmental coursework and, and, you know, requirements in, in their job descriptions, but, you know, but I think they, like any other position are subject to like, as I was talking about before that political influence. Right. And, and I think that's kind of the driver for a lot of the decision making that happens. You know, when I was talking before about politicians sort of being able to sense the the political winds and and act in a in a way that's going to enhance their opportunities to get reelected. You know, and sometimes that overrides the financial influence from interest groups, right? But sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> so sometimes the the money does talk, right? And and I think maybe in in larger communities, larger jurisdictions, you know, it's it's a little easier to go, or, or the politicians may be more likely to respond to the the financial interests that that help them get reelected.
1: Yeah. Does anybody know about uh, when I was at the League Observatory for for a visit? I think it's San Jose, they put into effect some regulation to preserve the the darkness by not switching to LED lights. They have a distinct yellow glow. I think the high pressure sodium bulbs that they still use, which help maintain the skies for science at the Lick Observatory. I wonder if anybody has any knowledge about that and how that works. Or maybe, you know, when people listen to the podcast, they can... You know, comment. Yeah, I'm I'm not aware. Frank, are you aware?
3: You know, I know around like Tucson and Flagstaff and other communities that have observatories nearby, they they do prefer, I think, as far as my knowledge goes, is to they do prefer the more amber lights. So they do prefer the high pressure sodiums. They're trying to prevent the wholesale transition to LEDs because of the blue spike. And you know as Ben knows right that that it's easier to deal with light pollution from high pressure sodium or something in that amber range um, than it is to get the, the the broad spectrum light from LEDs. It's much more difficult to remove that from astronomical images. So it may be changing now, but I think that in the past observatories preferred the low pressure or high pressure sodium lights because of the amber color the warmer colors
2: on hawaii island all of the street lights are amber which is it's interesting because they have a completely different culture too about lights over there like i I think it's ingrained partly because the observatory but everyone thinks like oh you don't turn lights on your property because then people can see what you have to steal
0: i mean it's true (laughs) Yeah. yeah i've uh yeah well how would you guys like an actual street light in your house. There's you can actually get for an ungodly amount of money something that a light fixture inside that will stand up called the standing lamp marble. And it's a domestic light that actually has all the aesthetic curves of street light. I mentioned this because there's a article or actually I guess a quasi white paper that came out looking at how street lights are actually gonna change the way we think of our cities. And it's not just that, you know, right here we're talking about what kind of lighting fixtures are, we should be using or how do different communities respond to lighting. Streetlights aren't going to be talking. They're, they're going to be part of a network, right? They're going to be saying, hey, there's some open parking spots here. The city can generate more revenue. Hey, here's the weather in this area. Here's what, you know, the temperature 32 degrees, 33 degrees, 31 degrees over here. Traffic volume. Air quality meters, noise pollution violations. It's going to be doing everything. They're not going to be less streetlights. If it can do all this, there's not going to be less streetlights. You're going to have more streetlights. Here in Philly, they have aggressive plans for installing cameras on live streetlights. I think they even passed some kind of, I think the city even put in an effect, some kind of a privacy code or some of other stuff. I don't know. I wasn't informed on it. But, you know, being a citizen, I
3: guess that's not something you need to worry about. Did you guys hear, have you guys heard of, of, of Li-Fi? Like LiFi, so LiFi is is the provision of of so you get internet access, but it comes through the light of streetlights. So neighborhoods will get access to the internet through their streetlights. It's it's a you know it's been several years since this has kind of hit the news, and and I'm sure it's moving forward. So that's part of what you're talking about. You know, so you can get that that you'll get your internet access through the streetlights through this Wi-Fi system, which is kind of crazy. It's it's you know, it really is moving that way. There are some really cool features of some of these systems too for streetlights. Like you can have emergency services have access to controls of the streetlights. So if, if your house makes a 911 call, the Uh, street light outside of your house will flash and then the driver of the ambulance or fire truck or whatever will be able to pinpoint exactly where their house is because the the light outside your house will be flashing so there's all kinds of really innovative features to those types of, of lighting systems that we're going to be seeing in the future wow yeah, it's all about to change. It's,
0: it's going to be much more intrusive in every which way. So. Yeah,
3: the police would be able to dim that certain lights in a neighborhood if there's a, a convict or you know somebody that they're trying to identify or find. They'll turn on. They'll increase the brightness of these lights and turn down the brightness of these lights, and so they'll be able to manipulate all of that with their phone, basically. So it's a it's a something on the horizon. Yeah. Wow, a more more network society here we come.
0: So, man, I've been having such a great time with you guys that we've been just—I didn't realize how far into the show we've been on it for like an hour and a half now. This is uh so I want to <laughs> <laughs> I want to give you guys a little chance to um, speak about yourselves, and then you know we have some few good articles to wrap up with. But uh, yeah, thank you guys. You guys, this this is a great show, and I really appreciate having all of you guys on. Uh, so real fast, before I give you guys the introduction, I just want to remind people at home, if you want to find anything discussed on the show, um, including the actual original script for the show, we have it over at lightpollutionnews.com, where you can see all the links and transcripts, an excellent resource. And i um, love it if you say hi to us. You can find us over at Instagram at light.pollution.news, over on LinkedIn at lightpollutionnews, or on Reddit at lightpollutionnews. Or you can just email me directly at Bill at com. and uh, you have any kind of you know, you want to follow up off Matthias's question earlier, or if you have any kind of great articles or, or things you'd like to share, just feel free to drop a line and love to talk. So Ben, you start with astrophotography the film camera. Th- that blows my mind and and uh, I'm not a digital native. <laughs> Tell me about it
2: that. It was it was so much harder in the film days. So much harder. I mean, that was before guiding was in existence. So you had to have a second scope there with a reticle in it that was illuminated. And you had to guide by hand. Oh, imagine I, that. I can't imagine that. <laughs> and then uh, on top of that, like gradients were impossible. I mean, if, if there was a gradient in your image, there was just no way to get rid of it. Because, you know, we we didn't have background extraction or gradient extractor or any of that kind of stuff like we do in today's software. And then another thing that was hard was focus. I mean, you could get focus through the viewfinder, but often the viewfinder was not tuned to the actual distance of the film plane of your lens yeah and so
0: you didn't know if your image isn't focusing or not until you developed it, <laughs> so how many successful shots did you have then? I'm curious about the ratio here <laughs> uh, Usually it was about one in ten now, are you talking about just setting up a, your camera take long setting up your camera take long exposure photos of say the orion nebula? Is that what's going on here yeah
2: usually usually it was one in ten successful shots like and and also, like, back then, you, you took one image usually because That's it was a long exposure. It wasn't stacks of images. Like, we do digitally, we do short exposures. And that was actually one of the hardest things to wrap your head around in the beginning was everyone was like, oh, my goodness, you got to take all these separate images because nobody had done it that way before. It had always been one long exposure. And you had to hypersensitize your film, too, which meant that you basically put it in a cooler... And bombarded it with this gas that dropped its temperature drastically, and there's all sorts of chemistry involved with it, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Put it that way, and I guess you can't do it on a windy night no no you, yeah that, that's what domes ruled, yeah, and that's 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 a lot of grit <laughs> It's character yeah. builder right there it was it was tough in those days, really tough. we have it so much easier today. <laughs>
0: Well, Ben, even with the Narrowband, it's still a lot easier. It's just, I guess, more time-consuming, right? It just takes a little longer.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so much easier. <laughs> I would never go back to the film days.
0: Ben, real fast, why don't you uh, tell people where they can find you and learn about the Narrowband channel?
2: All right. So I have a YouTube channel called the Narrowband channel. And basically on there, I talk about three different topics, astrophotography with a Mac, uh astrophotography with four thirds cameras and then also narrowband imaging.
0: So Frank, why don't you tell people where they can go out and learn about what you do? In addition
3: to my website, the Night Sky Resource Center, I also have an Instagram account where I post all my astrophotography as I as I complete them. And I guess the you know the website, you know, I like kind of have been working on a, a new post. That's related to a program that I did this summer called the Astronomy in Chile Educator Ambassador Program. And it's ASAP for short. So in ASAP, we got to go down to Chile and see some of the best, biggest and most amazing telescopes in the world, you know, both optical telescopes, radio telescopes, infrared telescopes, just incredible, you know, pieces of, of technology. And it was put on by a consortium of organizations and universities that do a lot of research down there. And in return for this behind the scenes you know, tour of these facilities, we need to come back to the U.S. and do some presentations on, on that they're working on in, in Chile, and basically why we're investing all this money and time and effort into uh, a country in South America. And you know, we went to a series of, of observatories, at a place called Cerro Tololo in Chile, another one just nearby called Cerro Pachon. Uh, Cerro Pachon has um, some amazing telescopes like Gemini South. It's basically a twin of a telescope in Hawaii called Gemini North. So the two scopes are the Gemini scopes doing some just amazing astronomy. Another one there is called SOAR, S-O-A-R. I can't remember what it stands for, but you can look it up. Another just really cutting-edge telescope down there that's in some of the darkest skies in the world. And then there's the Rubin Telescope, which is coming online next year, that will be doing a full sky survey just continuously over and over again. So within a few days we'll be able to see if anything has changed. You can't see that. And we also went to another observatory, radio astronomy observatory called Alma, the Atacama large millimeter array. Wow. What did you do down there, Frank? Did you miss? Is yes. there anything you missed with I don't know. It was it was incredible. It was it was a trip of a lifetime. So at Alma they they were part of the the group of, of, of observatories that imaged the, the first black hole. And, you know, so they're part of that group of, of instruments. So anyway, it was an incredible experience. And so what I'm writing about right now, hopefully this will drop in the next month or so, is this idea of, you know, cu- our curiosity of humans. You know, and the, the night sky has sort of always been a source of curiosity for us, all the way back from, you know, our distant, our distant ancestors who may have been sitting around a campfire on the like African savannah, you know, looking up at the night sky, wondering what all those lights are. You know, that same curiosity has continued through millennia and resulted in those amazing telescopes that I saw in Chile. So millions of, of dollars and you know countless hours of have been invested in, in an attempt to just satisfy that same curiosity. You draw now. that straight line, yeah. Exactly. You know, it's, it's that, it's that curiosity that drives us to, to, you know, study the night sky yeah. and, you know, basically we're trying to answer the, the same questions about those tiny little specks of life that we saw when, you know, we were just living on Savannah in Africa. So that's my next um, blog post. And again, hopefully that'll, that'll drop soon.
0: Looking very much forward to that. Yeah. Can't wait. Keep us in a loop, Frank. Over. we do Matias, man, jack of all trades.
1: Master of none.
0: <laughs> What is going on with the National Park Service and, and what's some great things you can tell us?
1: I encourage people to go visit their national park in their vicinity. Go visit their state park. Go to the Dark Sky website to see if there are any dark sky parks in their vicinity where they live. Just sit out in your backyard and look at the sky or when you go camping. And just be, try to be mindful when you're outside at night. There are plenty of free apps that you can hold up and figure out what the sprite light is, whether it's a planet or a star or a satellite or a UFO. Actually, you know, I think when they fly by our solar system with their space technology, they just lock their doors because they don't want any one of us to (laughs) get in there but yeah, this you know the, the the night sky is about connecting with our ancestry and with our natural cycle of seasons and day and night. We all benefit from using a little less light and being open with each other a little bit more.
0: Yeah, and, and to Ben's point earlier, you know your sleep is so much better. And I, you know pe- people, it's a thing now. People wear masks to bed, right? Because they don't have any dark place in their In their apartment or their house, wherever they're at. Yeah. All right. Well, I only have three more articles here. That's it, guys. But these are good ones. First off, Ben, next summer, if I roll in with a Mustang Mach-E that has a U-shaped LED ring on its roof, how would you feel?
2: Well, first off, I've always wanted a Mustang. Again. (laughs) I've already had one. (laughs)
0: But I'd probably be like, that's pretty obnoxious. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ford is toying with the idea of putting a lit ring around the exterior of the roof. And it's not going to be just a mocky. but it is still, this is all speculation about what they're trying to do with it. But
2: uh, is this the helicopters can see the car?
3: <laughs> I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah. That, th- there was an- many years ago, policemen, the lights on the roofs were in the shape of a V. And it was cool because from the side and from the front, you could see the lights, but also from a helicopter in the air, you could see what direction the cop car was going. There you go. Yeah.
0: I think this uh, one one idea is that it could signify when you have uh, auto, as in the human control driving, activate it. Um, also, I'm sure there's going to be some aesthetical appeal to it. People are going to you know, want to play with the lighting, or it could be a charge. Say red, not charged, green charged. We'll see. And find a way to put those led strips anywhere. You know, it's well, they're better. so
2: cheap and at work, we use them all the time. And like, I'm in the trade show exhibit industry and we put them everywhere now. And everything is so freaking bright now. Everybody's booth is white and
0: <laughs> you just get lost in this sea of brightness. Yeah. Well, I feel like over time it's going to have dimmable elements to this, right? Like, Right now, it's kind of like the beginning of the technology. You know, it's all gone mainstream, super cheap. But hopefully over the next few years, you know, you'll see more thoughtfulness with it. I don't know. Ben, do you feel like the expo industry will (laughs) be be as thoughtful?
2: You know, that's such a great question for my dad because he's really into cars. And he knows the industry well. But um, I'm kind of clueless as to like the car industry. I tell you what, if... If it makes the car – I know my dad told me this one time. He was like, if you put chrome in a car, a car will sell. And if LED is the future of chrome, it's going to sell.
0: It could be. I know we have Audis, which have the rear – I believe it is the brake lights actually can change. You have different settings you can set up for an LED screen because we have OLEDs back there. Yeah, it's there's going to be some kind of light technology this, but yeah, I, I don't even know if you can ever turn it off at some point, you know, right, if you have all electric vehicles. Uh, so <laughs> should be interesting.
2: The hardest part will be learning how to turn it off because these cars are so complicated now.
0: It, you're so right on that. We got a brand new Outback, and I still can't figure out where some of the lights are. I know there's light coming from different areas, but I, you know... <laughs> So you're on a, on a field on a dark night, surrounded by, you know, 50 or 100 of your closest friends. And, uh, and
2: my, my wife's <laughs> Honda has one switch in the top roof that turns every light off in the car. Wow. And I was like, somebody, why Honda? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's great. It's just one switch and it turns every light off in the car, inside and outside of the car.
3: Oh. Designed for designed for astrophotographers.
2: I know, I know. <laughs> when we went to Cherry Springs, I had no worries
0: because I was like, just flip that switch and we're good. <laughs> yeah, I always have worries. <laughs> well, here's another piece of technological envy. So you'll see a lot of lighting manufacturers offer this now. Ufi for instance, is offering permanent programmable outdoor lighting that you can paint your house trees And the sides of your neighbor's house in colors all seasons for all holidays. Essentially, it's programmable lights that they advertise as being the, you know, you make your house look like a nonstop Disneyland year round. And, you know, it's all on an app on your phone and you can decide what you want every different sector to look like. And this holiday season coming soon and maybe not leaving ever is a full color Homes. I, I don't know if any of you guys live in areas where you have <laughs> a lot of people. Is this the like holidays.
1: National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, where the Griswold turn on the five hundred thousand light bulbs? It's yep, you got it, Matthias, dead on. <laughs> and there's nothing like pop culture. The Germans love watching American movies. I grew up with it, and it's it's like a competition, right? Yep. Who has the best lighting in the, the between things? But people don't even wait for Thanksgiving anymore to put up their Christmas lighting. It's what, why are we competing with each other, right? To have the better outdoor lighting. You know, I have Santa Claus with a full lit up sled and the seven (laughs) reindeers with the blinking red nose. I mean, one night a year, right? Just like we have an international dark sky Day or dark sky week where we turn off the lights. You have like you'll go all out one night a year. The, the the day before Christmas, light up the whole town for what I care, and then stop. It's
0: ridiculous. <laughs> well, the good news: this this technology, this these programmable LEDs, will be year round. So once you set it up, you can just keep reusing it. <laughs> awesome, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Final story today. This one I really love. This is my favorite story of the whole month without doubt, it's a cool story in a month. So the Archangel Gabriel Orthodox Church in Williamsburg, Michigan, has a love affair with the night sky. This isn't in some remote part of the U.S. either. It's adjacent to Traverse City, Michigan. The church, which was built in 2020, was specified to design to allow for enjoying the night sky. Father Cyprian Streza, pastor of the parish, has a smartphone app that can turn off all the lights, includes interior, exterior, even parking lot lights. On nights referenced in the article, folks of his congregation will come together to watch northern lights in a fire pit behind the church. And unfortunately, per the article that night, that day they, they discussed this was was clouding out. But Streza believes that this ability to witness something so impressive aligns with his Greek Orthodox theology. Per the article, we believe that in this deep stillness, we encounter God. That's when the stillness becomes active. So active stillness is the fundamental in our spiritual experience. That's awesome.
3: Gonna leave yeah. you guys with that one, yep. Yeah, that's great. I I, I think it's all, again, to me, it sort of goes back to awe, right? It, it's The nice guy is the most awe-inspiring resource we have, in my opinion, and you know, it's one thing to look at the Grand Canyon and be in awe, but it, to look at the night sky and really think about it is just awe-inspiring. And and awe has always been historically associated with God and and spirituality and and the divine. So I think that's what they're that I think that's what they're driving at is they're creating that sense of awe in people and that's driving them to worship.
1: I, I have ambivalent feelings about this, I, I have to say. I I I love connecting with people, whatever they, they found, however they find their way to the night sky. And I I grew up Catholic. I'm no longer following a monotheistic religion. And if it works, great. You know, I have found that when I talk about the universe and I say it's 13.8 billion years old and Earth and the solar system 4.5 billion and people come and say, well, the the Bible says the earth uh, is 6,000 years old and they keep harping about it and they try to drive their religious views into my program. Then I get annoyed because I don't go to church and stand up and say the science says the universe is 13.8 billion years old. So, but I go with Frank, you know, I want to be open-minded. I'm an American citizen. I accept all views. And I treasure the difference in views that we can have. If we can find a common ground and find the all in the universe through stillness and dark skies. If on the second step, some people see God, I see another spiritual source. I'm all for it.
0: There we have it. Matthias, Ben, Frank, thank you so much for joining the show. It's been a great one. Really, really thankful for you guys. We record the Light Pollution News podcast once a month on Sundays around 4 p.m. Eastern time. You can find us pretty much everywhere, even on YouTube, just by searching Light Pollution News. Gentlemen, I hope you had as much fun as I did. I love recording Sundays. This is my favorite time of the month. So thank you so much, guys. Closing out, I'm your host, Bill McGinney. I to shed the light only where it's needed. Have a great and safe November, everyone. And for those of you celebrating, happy early Thanksgiving.